A warm welcome to First Move. Good to have you with us as always. And we're following a number of developing stories for you this hour, including Greece in mourning. At least 36 people have lost their lives. Dozens are injured after a head-on train collision near the city of Larissa. One person has been arrested. Leaders from around the world are expressing their condolences. We'll bring you the latest on just how that tragedy may have occurred. Plus, celebration and recrimination in Nigeria. Ruling party candidate Bola Ahmed Tinubu is declared the winner of the hotly contested presidential election. Opposition parties, though, calling the whole process tainted and demanding a fresh vote. We'll discuss, too, the numerous social and economic challenges facing Nigeria post-election, including the physical cash supply crisis, with the CEO of the Nigerian mobile payments company, Paga, later in the show. And in Asia today, China's economic rebound catching economists off guard, manufacturing, especially bouncing back after the lifting of COVID restrictions. In fact, output from Chinese factories hitting its best levels in more than a decade last month. The services and construction sectors seeing strong growth too and better numbers too from the hard-hit property sector. As you can imagine, investors applauding the news. The Hang Seng spiking more than 4% on the first day of March trade. The Shanghai Composite also, as you can see, they're up some 1%. The data giving an early session boost to U.S. stock market futures too. But it's looking like a firmly lower open now, as you can see, two-tenths of 1% across the board. However, Europe still managing to hold in the green. Plenty more on this and on China's charge later on in the programme. But first... The latest from northern Greece, where, as I mentioned, at least 36 people have lost their lives. Dozens more have been injured after a passenger train collided with a freight train last night. Just listen to the words of this passenger who was on board that train. There was panic for 10, 15 seconds. It was chaos, tumbling over, fires, cables hanging, broken windows, people screaming, people trapped. It was two meters high from where we jumped to leave, and beneath that was broken iron debris. But what could we do? Eleni Jokos joins us now with the latest. Eleni, you can just tell our viewers exactly what you know about what happened, but I think everyone's asking the question here amid this tragedy of where were the fail-safes, the alarm systems that you would have hoped would have prevented this? Simply put, they clearly did not kick in. The electronic indicators that would have alerted um, the the trains, uh, the station master to any danger clearly did not work. We've also just confirmed news that Greek police have arrested the station master of the train station in the city of Larissa. So he is currently in police custody. And this is quite significant. I mean, if you think about a train, a passenger train coming up from Athens, colliding with a freight train that is coming down from Thessaloniki, colliding head on, traveling from what we heard from national uh, state, from state media, about 25 kilometers without anyone taking notice, without the train slowing down, there is a concern that there was human error more than it could have been a technical fault of sorts. And we just heard from that passenger and you're hearing more harrowing news. In fact, people are calling this the train of death. Um, the uh, mayor of Tembi, which is uh, a small town just outside of Larissa, where the actual collision occurred, saying that when he arrived on site, he saw chaos, mostly young university students 
completely confused, saying that the, it, the impact felt absolutely enormous. Um, the first two carriages, Julia, caught a light that the heat was so intense. In fact, you can see some of the imagery and you're seeing that cranes are pulling up some of the mangled metal because of the intensity of the fire. It affected um, first responders from assisting people. The third carriage is where most of the fatalities occurred. The health department, the hospitals, are saying that the, 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 the victims were so badly injured that they need to conduct DNA testing. There are people outside of the hospital crying and in desperate need of information for the people that they're looking for, for missing people. Around 200 people, from what we also understand, have been taken to a place of safety. 72 people or so are injured. Uh, six of those, 67 people, are sitting uh, in emergency and critical uh, state and critical care. Um, but this has absolutely shocked the nation. In the aftermath of all of this, the questions now arise. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Questions about the modernization of the railway system in Greece and, of course, those electronic indicators that would normally kick in did not respond. And how did a passenger train change track? Those are the questions that need to be answered. The Prime Minister, um, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, was on site. He says that they will leave no stone unturned to figure out what went wrong. They announced three days of national mourning. Um, And we also know that the EU Council has uh, been flying the Greek flag at half-mast. Lots of international reaction to this as well and people sending condolences and well wishes. Awful. Tragic events and our hearts with everybody involved, Eleni. And as you said, yeah. uh, graphic images, live images there of the salvage operation and I think the sheer yeah. power of that crash. I assume that was a piece of a carriage that we saw being lifted by cranes there. Uh, Eleni Jokas, yeah. thank you so much for that report there. Okay, to Nigeria now. Officials just declared the winner of last weekend's controversial presidential election. They're saying Bola Ahmed Tinubu has been elected to lead Africa's largest economy despite growing outcry from opposition parties. Larry Madoa joins us now from Lagos. Well, we have a declared winner, it seems. His slogan was, it's my turn, and it now seems that it is. The question is, are these opposition parties going to accept it? The opposition parties will not accept it, Julia, and we've just heard that the Labour Party, which was the party that uh, Peter Obi, that youth favourite, was running on, is going to go to court to contest it. But even more, a new statement from the Nigerian Civil Society Situation Room, it's a collection of 70 civil society organisations here in Nigeria, they say that this election was not credible, and they're criticising the way the Independent National Electoral Commission reigned this election with lack of organization and planning and logistical failures and lots of other issues that they say meant that this election cannot pass the threshold for credibility that they had set to administer. So an important statement there. We're at a market where life is back to normal here in Lagos. This is a Nero market. And I want to hear from one person, Onik uh, Ginika. How do you feel about the election? Um, I feel we were cheated. I think the people's mandates, we are robbed of it. This is not what we looked out for. We believed in change. We believed in the... In the words of Peter B, the, the candidate for LP, he, he, he made us believe that there's change. And we know that we are ripe for change because we have so much potential in this country. And, and the masses came out. We, we, we drove for that change. We all came out to vote, believing that our, our votes would count. And at the end of the day, what we saw was different because even from the... Each of us always took picture of... Um, our, P, uh, our polling unit results 
and what we saw and what was um, given to us at the end of the day we are totally different. So you don't trust the result that the Independent National Electoral Commission has announced? No. No, I totally don't trust it, and many people don't trust it. I'm a social media person. I've been following the trend on Twitter. The, 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 the result everybody has is totally different from what, what we are seeing. And people came out. So it's like, according to what we, we experience, it's not what we are seeing. So it's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of the reality. This is what I voted, and this is not what I'm seeing. You hear the market, and cash has been in short supply since the demonetization and the redesign of the Naira notes. How are you paying for what you hope to buy? Okay, right now I, I don't have fruits in the house, so me and my friend, we just came out to see if there's anyone that can take transfer or POS, if any of them will work. Because even the last time I came to the market, I needed to buy fruits. Most of them said they were not going to take transfers because before, some were taking transfers because there's really no cash anywhere. Most banks are closed. Like last week, two weeks ago, I went to a particular bank, different branches, they were all closed. So I can't even withdraw, the ATMs are not working. So, but the option that we had in the market was transfers. So some of the traders gave us the option of transfers. But before the election, the last time I came to the market, they weren't taking transfers because they had the issue of, if they take transfers, when they now go to the bigger markets to get their own goods, the seller there would not take transfers. So. It's, it's okay, even like my customer I went to now, on his table I can't find watermelon I'm looking for. Obviously he can't go back to market to get the things he needs. So it's a mess. It's really a mess everywhere. It's a mess everywhere. Ginika, thank you so much. And I think that explains the problem with this economy, uh, Julia. That she's talking about transfers. Because there's no cash in the economy, since this cash shortage after the demonetization, you're coming to the market and hoping that the person you're buying from will accept a transfer from your bank account to their bank account. And the failure rate is something like 60-70%. That is precisely the reason why so many people were looking for change and why as she says they're heartbroken she told me before they feel cheated julia yeah i i saw that that was the standout line for me really there um i feel cheated larry it's the perfect tee up because we're going to be speaking to um the ceo of paga later on in the show who's trying to digitize payments but to your point about even the digital transfers if a significant proportion of those are failing then um yeah what do you do uh larry great job thank you for joining us there from lagos Okay, interesting. We will discuss shortly on the show. For now, the long battle for Bakhmut appears to be reaching a crescendo as Ukraine's military says Russian forces have intensified their assault on the city. Ukraine's President Zelensky says Bakhmut represents the most difficult challenge across the front lines, with soldiers describing the situation as hellish. Beyond this battle, Moscow is accusing Kyiv of attempting multiple drone strikes on infrastructure deep within Russia. Meanwhile, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko is in Beijing meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It comes amid growing speculation that China might consider sending lethal aid to Moscow for its war effort. Mark Stewart joins us now with the latest there. I think the context here is important. This is a leader of a country that allowed Russian troops to use his nation as a, a stage in their initial incursion into Ukraine last year. Um, he talked about intensifying relations between Belarus and China. What does that mean in practice, Mark? Yeah, Julia, I think that is the question. And let's expand upon those points you made. We have uh, China trying to portray itself as this in-the-middle peacemaker, yet it is having a very powerful, its top leadership is having a very powerful face-to-face -face meeting with the president of Belarus. This is a nation that not only has a long-time 
relationship with China, but also with Vladimir Putin. And as you rightly said, has been serving almost as a staging point for troops from Russia to enter Ukraine. Yet Belarus says it is supporting a neutral peace plan from China. It is only fair to ask questions about the sincerity of that pledge. As far as this peace plan that Russia is proposing, it is very vague on details. It doesn't even call for the withdrawal of Ukrainian of Russian troops, that is, from Ukraine. So with all of that said, with all of that laid out, the president of uh, Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, is showing his support for China's so-called peace proposal. Let's take a listen to some of his remarks earlier today from Beijing. We can see the situation developing on the international scene, and we congratulate you on your calm and thoughtful progress. You're following your own path, you don't stand in anyone's way, and you don't react to the petty jabs coming from left and right at the People's Republic of China. So we have that storyline playing out. Another storyline that's playing out amidst all of this is still allegations, concerns by the U.S. government that China is very close or thinking about supplying Russia with lethal weapons. Finally, Julia, I do want to let you know that we are getting some remarks late tonight from uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is saying to China, you know, you really can't have it both ways. You can't be a peacemaker, yet uh, contribute to the fire that is fueling Vladimir Putin's flames. So that's where we are today. Also, real quickly, uh, as far as the relationship between uh, Belarus and China, we are getting uh, some, some late words from Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who says that the friendship between China and Belarus uh, is unbreakable. Julia? Mm, interesting comments as well from Blinken just a day after he actually gave the most pointed comments on how China would be tackled if they did provide weapons, which was direct sanctions on Chinese firms mm -hmm. and uh, citizens. So um, the rhetoric here is certainly heating up. Mark, great to have you with us. Thank you. Mark Stewart there. All right, turning now to today's strong data from China. Virtually every sector of the economy getting a boost last month, one thing's for sure. The highly restrictive zero COVID era is well and truly in the past. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, great to have you with us. Always a slight dollop of caution when we talk about Chinese data. However, this is so strong. I think it probably caught policymakers and economists off guard. Could have profound implications for just how much stimulus they need, I think, going forward too. What do you make of it? Yeah, that's a great question, Julia. Clearly, the manufacturing rebound for the Chinese economy was incredibly strong. And I think it does show that the relaxation of many of those very strict policies that have been in place during the early stages of the COVID pandemic, now that they are being loosened, you are seeing the Chinese economy roaring back to life and you're seeing uh, you know Chinese stocks rebounding as well. Remember in February it was a rough month. I think there were some concerns about whether the economy was starting to lose some steam. This data, granted it's only one data point, but this seems to suggest that the Chinese economy is not going to be slowing anytime soon. But as you point out, you always have to take Chinese official government data with uh, several billion grains of salt.
Oh, you were a little bit more punchy than me there. I'll just smile sweetly. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, the UN's nuclear watchdog says near bomb-grade-level uranium particles have been found at an Iranian nuclear facility. Meanwhile, our Christian Armanpour sat down with Iran's foreign minister for an exclusive interview covering a whole range of topics, including the alleged sexual abuse of anti-government protesters while in the custody of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Listen in. When you say the Islamic Republic of Iran respects human rights, one female protester says that she was detained inside a Revolutionary Guard facility for more than a month and raped by three different men. She went to a cleric, a mullah, afterwards because she was having suicide thoughts. She was so upset. CNN spoke with that cleric. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable for a woman, whatever she's done, to be arrested and raped? And there are many, many, many reports of sexual abuse in this situation against women and men. Firstly, in the peaceful demonstrations in the fall, no one was arrested. So you're just denying that? However, in those protests that had become violent, some individuals, some of whom had entered Iran from the outside and were using firearms and killing the police, were arrested. You do know that the Supreme Leader actually issued an amnesty, and all those who were imprisoned were released, with the exception of those who had killed someone or were being sued. Regarding the Iranian woman that you mentioned, I cannot confirm it. There have been so many such baseless claims made on social media and in media. Okay, these, these are not baseless and they weren't on the internet. It's CNN spoke to a cleric, a religious person inside your country and got this story. We have seen some of CNN's reports that are targeted and false. That's not true. We, we, we report the facts and we report the truth and that's why you're sitting here with me, Mr. Foreign Minister. Do not miss Christian Armanpour's exclusive interview with Iran's foreign minister. That's Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Geneva, 6 p.m. in London, only on CNN. Okay, coming up after this, a new political landscape in Nigeria. Can the newly elected president rise to the challenge of tackling the country's economy and more? We speak to a tech business leader about how it may be done. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As you've been hearing, Africa's largest nation has declared a new leader after a highly disputed presidential election. Officials say Bola Ahmed Tinubu won the contest despite a growing outcry from opposition parties. Tinubu appealed for unity in his acceptance speech. A top priority will be tackling things like economic issues, inflation, unemployment and the recent banknote shortage in an economy where 90% of transactions are made in cash. That's something our next guest understands well and has been working to improve and digitize now for a number of years. Paga, a mobile money firm with 21 million unique users, processes over $800 million worth of transactions each month. It allows people to digitally send and receive money and access financial services via their app, 
or through one of their many retail agents. The founder and group CEO of Paga, Tio Ovuyusu, joins us now from Lagos. Tayo, great to have you on the show. Uh, it's been too long, actually, and that's entirely my fault. And yeah. we'll be back sooner, I promise. Um, let's start. No, great great let's to be here, start. Julia. Thank you. So Good. Great to have you. Um, let's start with the election. Um, you obviously experienced the new digital form of, of voting. You've experienced some of the concerns, the delays. What do you make of it all? And do you think the people will trust the result? Will you? Yeah, I, I definitely trust the result, I think. And I hope most people do. I, I think there were definitely um, some issues, no doubt. Uh, but I don't think it's to the scale of not trusting the results. Um, I think that the elections are now over. Um, I used these, this equipment and it worked, um, worked fine. Um, that said, um, my hope is that we have a, a peaceful post-election um, and something amazing has happened in Nigeria. And, and we all have to admit it. This is the first time a third party gave the two main parties a real serious run uh, for the presidency. Um, and I think that has inspired hope for all Nigerians that their vote does matter. Um, and I think that would bode well in the future for more, um, more people coming out to vote. Um, and I think, though, that now is the time to return our attention to the urgent issues um, that this next government has to address and to get Nigeria working for Nigerians again. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, we obviously have to talk about that, and we will, but what you said, make, and you make a really great point, do you think when we come round, and obviously there's a while now and a lot of work to be done in the short term, the next presidential election, actually, you think lessons will be learned, that people will vote more, and actually we could see an even bigger shift in terms of more than just two parties, incumbent and opposition, fighting this out? Absolutely. I think, I think people, I mean, the fact that the president-elect who was former governor of Lagos State, did not win the, the plurality I mean, the, of votes in Lagos State is a big point. Um, and I think he recognized it in his acceptance speech um, and recognized um, the, the, the um, sentiment from, from the people of Lagos State as well. Um, and this is a state that his party has dominated. Uh, so I think people will look at this and say, it may not be now, uh, but our vote counts and we should all come out and vote. And I certainly hope that the Electoral Commission over this next period will improve, you know, and solve the issues that were, um, that did come up during the cycle. I mean, we can talk about some of those, but the one that I think plays most into what you do and what you've been working on now for, for a number of years is the sort of de facto banknote crunch that took place in the run up mm. with the government trying to swap banknotes and, and doing it over such a short period that I think inevitably there were going to be challenges. Um, Talk to me about what you saw as a result for your business. And we had a lady on the show earlier just saying even trying to do um, sort of digital transfers actually was was hampered yeah. over the past few weeks too. Tell us what's been going on. Yeah, the, I think the, the direction of the central bank to move Nigeria to more cashless society is something I'm wholeheartedly behind. I think it's the right policy direction. Um, and I do think and hope that the next government um, continues and actually strengthens this policy direction. Um, have they been um, some things that could have been done differently? Absolutely. Um, what we have experienced on our platform is over 3x growth 
um, year over year on transactions um, digitally. And, and I think the banks have seen that they also need to improve their platforms and their technology and infrastructure. Um, on our side, um, we have had really high uptime um, and we've been able to and see people coming in to look for using our platform, whether it's at our retail agents or directly on their mobile phone. Uh, so for us, it's been really about driving the move to digital. Um, when we spoke last, um, I think we spoke last Q2 of 2020, where we started seeing that move with people signing up. Um, and and today, and then when we spoke, we were processing, I think about, um, I think we were processing just about 30 million transactions in the year or something like that. Now, now last year, we did 65 million transactions worth over 3.2 trillion naira. That's about 10% of the total estimated consumer spend in Nigeria, which is 40 trillion. So that growth is continuing into this year. And I think this move to digital from the central bank is only going to further spur it. Um, And I expect that we'll continue to drive um, additional growth, whether it's from individuals trying to figure out ways to transact digitally and make everyday payments um, or businesses who want to collect payments um, as well. Um, and a recent partnership that we have with one of the big banks here, the United Bank for Africa, um, is going to further help this because we've partnered together working to issue for them to issue visa cards to our customers. So UBA issues a visa card to our customers, both a physical card. So now wherever a visa is accepted, you can use it, whether Paga, that merchant accepts Paga or not. Um, also online, you can now use the visa card to shop online um, and to receive remittances into Nigeria, which is a big deal for Nigerians. As you know, over the last three years, a lot of people have also left the country. Uh, so this is a big, big opportunity. So we're really excited about the push to digital. Um, I think it's going to stay. Oh, you know, there's so much I could talk to you about. You're going to have to come back and talk um, more in depth about the business. But you just said something there that I have sure. to ask you about. And that is what we talk about is the brain drain of people just going elsewhere mm. looking for opportunity. I mean, you're, you're sort of the other way because you were born in the United States and you, you chose, um, you know, to, to move to Nigeria because you saw the opportunity. And, and obviously you're talking about that now and you have seen growth. But are you finding the people that, that you need in order to be able to, to grow? And, and how, what does this government now have to do, at least in the short term, to tackle some of these issues, but also stop people leaving and encouraging brilliant people, innovators to come back? Well, Julia, first of all, to correct you, I, w- I was born and raised here in Nigeria. I left when oh, I was 16. Sorry. Yes. And then went <laughs> to the U.S. No, not at all. I mean, but it was my formative years. Um, and then I came back uh, when, when I'm talking to my team and, 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 and young folks today. Um, I don't blame them for wanting to leave. Right. Um, I do think that this government, new government now has the opportunity to set in stone some key things that would drive in, 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 um, investments and would drive growth in the economy and would make it a harder choice for people to leave because it's not easy going to Canada not knowing anyone um, and trying to find a job or going to the UK and not knowing anyone. So I think there are five key things that this government really has to tackle. One is to solve the electricity problem. One is to tackle the rising subsidy, second sub, rising subsidy on petrol which is having a real impact on our dollar reserves. And then to more freely trade the Naira, right? If the more freely trade the Naira, more market-driven, it's going to drive investments and it's going to then create jobs, right? Um, and then finally, you know, enact social, a social net for Nigerians. We don't have a social net. There's no social security program. There's no Medicare program. I think if you do these things, 
um, and you unleash innovation across the country, people will not look to leave, right? People like me came back because Nigeria can be the giant of Africa. This country is going to be the second largest country in the world in, within the century. Um, and it's on track to be larger than the United States very shortly. So I think we have a lot of potential and it's now time for the government to really get working for Nigerians, right? And to open up investments to allow people to come and invest in Nigeria more smoothly and to create jobs locally so people don't leave. Yeah, third largest economy, I believe, by 2050 in the world. So um, essential for Nigeria to get it sorted, but also essential for the region and the world. Um, very quickly, because I'm now out of time, but um, I couldn't agree more with you on what needs fixing. Any any um, desire to be part of the leadership of the country one day and promote fixing maybe, in a different way? Maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day. Um, you never say no if your country calls you to serve. Um, but I'm, I'm very available to, I've been to various governments um, and would be again in lending my voice um, and in sharing a perspective on what I think um, can be done. I am hopeful uh, that this new government um, will, um, will get it right. And, and I think, and I'm hopeful that we, we have a peaceful transition um, and that we all focus towards uh, making Nigeria the giant of Africa again. Okay. You this conversation is to be continued on numerous fronts and Oops. apologies once again for getting jumbled up on the um on the journey back and forth um we'll reconvene my friend thank you so much thank Great you so much Julia. Yeah. Nice thank you. you welcome back to first move no more rocking around the clock at least on tiktok the social media app and political lightning rod announcing that it's limiting screen time to one hour per day for users under the age of 18. Call it perhaps a much-needed TikTok timeout. All this as Congress debates a new bill that would give President Biden the power to ban the Chinese app used by more than 100 million Americans completely. Claire Duffy joins me now. Don't think that would be a very popular decision, but the TikTok timeout is interesting. Perhaps big kids could uh, use this as well. And all of us just get that conscious reminder of after one hour. Claire, what do we what do we make of this? That's right, Julia. TikTok has said it plans to introduce this default screen time limit of an hour for users under 18. And this comes as, as TikTok has faced significant pressure to address concerns that the app could be bad for kids, could lead kids down concerning content rabbit holes, or could keep kids up late at night. The way the app is designed, it's just so easy to scroll and scroll. And so this is a clear effort to address some of those concerns. Uh, there are some big caveats here. While the app will set the screen time in place, users will be prompted to enter a passcode once they've reached that one hour time limit, and then they can continue scrolling. Users could also turn this default feature off, although TikTok says that once users have reached 100 minutes of screen time, they will be prompted to set some kind of limit for themselves. So parents could keep that pin safe and not give it to their children, arguably. Um, I just like the conscious reminder that you've been on this uh, social media vortex for an hour and perhaps you need to think again. Um, Claire, interesting. We'll see. <laughs> Claire Doffy there. Thank you. Okay. An update now on the fatal train crash tragedy in northern Greece. We've just learned that the Greek transport minister has resigned and announced his resignation after the collision that killed at least 36 people and injured dozens more. Greek authorities have also arrested the station manager in the city of Larissa. We'll bring you more details as we get them.
Welcome back to First Move. Founded back in 2010 by three NASA scientists, Planet Labs designs, builds, and operates a constellation of over 200 imaging satellites in orbit, capturing daily snapshots of the world. Its satellites revisit locations on Earth up to 10 times per day, capturing more than 30 terabytes of data daily. Some of their clients include a number of governments, NGOs, and commercial companies all around the world. And recently, Planet's technology has been essential in tracking global events like the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria and Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. Its data has been used to combat misinformation about the war and help document the emerging food crisis by monitoring wheat crops in real time. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Will Marshall, the co-founder and CEO of Planet Labs. Will, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I want to talk about Planet Labs in your own words, but I think the climate, agricultural sort of beginnings and interest for you is, is what made you decide to begin Planet Labs in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, yes, uh, we, when we were at NASA, we were thinking about how can we use our space geekery talents uh, to help all the challenges of the world. And I think to, to your question about what's going on in space, it's kind of very interesting. Um, lots of things are changing. There's new rockets and new satellites and billionaires uh, talking about going to Mars. Uh, but actually, the upshot is, is mainly about how it can help the Earth. We're seeing rockets decrease in price by about 5x over the last 5, 10 years. And we've seen satellite cost performance increase about 1,000x, basically the shrinking of satellites. And it's like the, uh, the, desktop, the, 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 the mainframe to desktop revolution in IT a few decades ago, but happening in space. And the upshot of that is that we're having vastly new data sets about the planet, helping us to take care of it in real time. I mean, I love the idea that helping farmers track where and what needs to be done in terms of fertilizers. It just It's so much more efficient, you would hope, than having to be able to walk around a field and, and track the changes and understand perhaps when something needs harvest. Just having these regular snapshots imagery for, for agriculture, crucial in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, agriculture is 25% of the land mass of the earth. Right. And by monitoring the whole earth every day, as we do, we can literally tell for every part of every field, uh, how well is the crop doing? What type of crop is it? Is it wheat or soy or, or what have you? And, and then help the farmer determine when to add more fertilizer or when it doesn't, isn't necessary, reduce use of fertilizer, which is good for the environment, and increase crop yields. So very tactical help, despite being coming from a long way away. Um, and that's just one of many applications. Um, another 25% of the landmass of the earth is forest, and we can help with tracking uh, deforestation. So we help governments uh, track deforestation. We help with mapping. We help with many other areas. You can imagine the use of these data sets is, is quite profound. It's mainly about helping uh, people make smarter day-to-day -day decisions with more up-to-date information about the changing planet. I mean, the, the uses for this are, as you've indicated, broad, whether it's um, infrastructure, agriculture, uh, intelligence, government, I think, energy. And suddenly, Will, you found your data being used by a whole array of individuals. And you were working, I know, because this is how you and I met, in Ukraine, first and foremost, not only to try and help the situation as far as understanding the dangers of food security, which has been a regular conversation on this show, but also just to be able to understand the damage to buildings. Just talk us through what you were doing there, because that obviously translates to the work that you've more recently been doing too in, in Turkey. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're trying to help as much as we can. And uh, we're imaging the whole world every day. So, of course, we're imaging all of Ukraine every day. And we see things change. And um, the broad impact, I think, is that it's helping to lift the fog of war. No longer can anyone hide. Um, and it, that's helping operationally um, with the Ukrainians track troops um, to help defend their country. It's helping uh, operations of humanitarian organizations that are trying to get relief and aid into the country. Um, it's helping with um, uh, the hearts and minds. Uh, as you said, it's bringing transparency. You know, we provide that imagery to places like the CNN or other news outlets to help uh, everyone get to see. Uh, so when, when the Russian government said, hey, uh, we're not bombing civilian targets, we can show the next day, well, here's the five hospitals and, and, and schools that you, you bombed. And so no one can hide in this situation. Um, I think to, to your point also about the, uh, you know, the other analyst, analytics that we can bring to that, um, we've had a couple of examples of that. NASA Harvest used our data to do this image uh, uh, processing to tell the crop yield in every farmer's field across all of Ukraine, how well is the wheat doing, how well is the other crops doing. And that was important to feed, to help the Ukrainian government feed the Ukrainian people. But it's equally important, as you said, for the food security crisis around the world, because almost half the world's poor countries uh, get their grain from Ukraine. It was like a big exporter to the poor countries. We could track how well is it doing, where is it getting stuck, um, tracking the illegal shipments, and uh, as, as, as some journalists found, uh, illegal shipments to Turkey and, and Syria against the sanctions and so on. And so help uh, get to the bottom of that so we can undo it. Um, and finally, to your point about um, uh, building damage, we work with Microsoft to do a building damage report for the United Nations Secretary General um, of the building damage of all the buildings across Ukraine to help them determine how and when they can bring the displaced people back into the homes. Are their homes still there? If they're damaged, how much damage is there? Um, and, and that's super important. And uh, that's the power of also our data plus AI coming into the fold. So we're trying to help as much as we can. And, and yes, in myriad ways, some of them unexpected. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually, about the use of artificial intelligence and where that fits. And perhaps um, we're covering a lot of ground here, but it's sort of mind-blowing what, what your data's been involved in. Um, it was also involved in the process of understanding what happened with the now infamous Chinese spy balloon. Will, talk to me about how the data was used in the process of understanding what this was and where it came from, and, um, and, and, and also the artificial intelligent component of, of data analytics yeah. in this. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating thing. Of course, when we heard about the balloon, we were like, oh, can we find it in our imagery? I mean, it's quite a big <laughs> balloon, uh, um, 70 meters across, about 200 feet. Uh, so we can we can see that for sure in our imagery. So we looked and and we have some colleagues at Synthetic, uh, a company doing AI, that we quickly built a little algorithm that looked for the uh, balloon um, and then were, were able to search for it in our imagery. And they did that in just a couple of days. And so within a couple of days, we had already, um, Nora may have not been able to find it, but we had found it and we found it crossing the country in a number of places where people hadn't yet found it. And even um, some journalists managed to find out where it had been launched from in Inner Mongolia uh, using our uh, data. And, and so, yes, I mean, I guess, one of the exciting things out of that is that we can now go back in time and find when they were previously crossing the US. Uh, when did they do that? Last year, the year before, uh, because we always keep this snapshot and record it. We never delete those data. 
Um, and similarly across the other parts of the world, if you said, hey, I, I'm in Europe, uh, can you tell me when, it, if it was crossing our country in last summer, we can go and have a look. Uh, so we can track all of these things uh, across the whole world uh, through time. Okay, I have about 30 seconds because breaking news today, unfortunately, um, squeezed our time well. But you, you, again, you can come on and we can talk more about this. But who pays for all the help that you're providing? Because you are a company. Are, are you managing to be, yeah. to be profitable? And it's a discussion I've had with Brad Smith of Microsoft, too, about you take action initially and, and then you sort of work out the money afterwards. Well, very much that we have the bent on trying to help the world first, but we are selling the data quite successfully um, to governments for disaster response, uh, like with Turkey, which we didn't quite get to, but where we're quickly trying to help them. We're trying to help. We sell it to um, um, governments for intelligence. We sell it to mapping companies. We sell it to agriculture companies. And in fact, the the, the margins on the business are quite high because when we sell our imagery once, the second time we sell it, the, the incremental cost of serving them that image is very low. So we have good growth rates over 40% uh, this year and so on. Um, it's, it's, it's an exciting business. Data is in demand because everyone wants to move to a sustainable economy and to um, and, and to a digital transformation, a transformed economy. And the bottom line of that is data. Um, and so we're, we're helping with those transitions. Yeah. And, and helping us address crises and understand big questions and understand big balloons in this case, too. Will, will we and, 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 hopefully, and hopefully fighting the post-truth era as well. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very, very much. Thank you, Will. Great to have you on. And we'll speak again soon. Will Marshall, co-founder and CEO of Planet Labs. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. International supermodel Pratika Swarup is looking to change the beauty industry for Indian women with her own line, Prakti Beauty. The brand is a fusion of her name, meaning loved one, and Shakti, which stands for female power or energy. And she spoke to our Chloe Mellis about why representation in the beauty industry for women of colour is important to both her and why she's taken on this mission. I really started back in my childhood and then just like realizing that there was a space in the market um, through my experience in the fashion industry and I somehow specialized in beauty. So I had the opportunity to work with all these amazing um, cosmetic companies, skincare companies, and then experts and um, seeing that space between super, you know, traditional brands like Ayurvedic and Indian brands and then Western brands. And no brand really had the ability to appeal to all women and really make Indian beauty accessible. So one thing I really talk about is accessibility and just having these rituals and these ingredients and even like techniques. Like, I mean, Ayurveda runs deep. So it's like, you know, massage techniques, hair oiling, it goes on. Um, but just having those uh, be able to relate to all women and also make it easy and fun. And, you know, for my generation, because um, there's this, you know, preconceived notion of Indian beauty being very traditional and quiet and also um, a little bit more like older feeling. And Chloe Mellis joins us now. Fascinating to have a conversation with her and clearly spotting a gap in the market to sell sort of traditional products, ingredients, rituals to the West and beyond. 
Well, Julia, first of all, the reason why I found her to be so fascinating is because she has been on the cover of every magazine from Allure to Elle to Harper's Bazaar, Arabia. And she has this big following. And she had also posed for several different uh, beauty brands. And she was out shopping and looking in the marketplace. And she couldn't find things that really fed her soul. And this is why she embarked on this mighty mission. Take a listen to a little bit more of our interview. I just wanted it to have this global appeal so that all women could benefit from these wonderful um, ingredients and rituals. So, yeah, that's kind of what started me down this path. And that whole idea of like, why hasn't there been an Indian inspired beauty brand to reach global scale? And then I came up with this hybrid concept really based off of just like who I am because I'm, I'm, you know, my Indian heritage and I've been born and raised in America and I'm very proud of my cultural duality. So this hybrid concept really represents women today because we're hybrids of mixed cultures and races and um, backgrounds and goals and dreams. So I wanted our products and our brand to really represent women and just have this idea that, you know, we're capable of anything and we don't really fit one sort of role. We are about pursuing all of our passions. The best part is that, Julia, she is 25 years old. She just graduated from Columbia University in New York with honors, and she is not done yet. More products are coming out, including a new serum, and she just really wanted to freshen up uh, that outdated outlook on Indian beauty and really combine it with the Western culture. And, you know, she was born and raised in Virginia Beach, and that is—she's doing a great job. It's really resonating with— women all over the world. Yeah, she's she's found a gap in the market and is um, and is pursuing it. Will it make me look like her? Because if so, <laughs> Chloe, I'm I'm in. I'm I'm signed up. Where do I sign? Where do I get these products? I, I know, I know. I use her polish. It's so good. Oh. I know. She's on to something. I think she's born. She's like genetically gifted, but yes. <laughs> yeah. No no advertising on the show. Not love. Complete bias. Chloe, great to have you on as always. Thank you. Okay, and that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the world. Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.